Good morning, everybody. So good to be with you. And um, if you're new with us today, my name's Aaron Stern. I'm the lead pastor here. And I also want to welcome everybody online with us. So grateful to have you joining us as well. Um, Several years ago, uh, my wife and I and our boys lived in Colorado Springs. That was before we moved here to Fort Collins to plant Mill City Church. And, and we bought a house that was built in 1904. And when we bought it, it needed a lot of TLC. It, need, you know, it was not fully restored. It needed to be fully restored. So that task was on us. And the outside of the house uh, was, had aluminum siding on it. So we ripped all of that off, actually not knowing what was going to be underneath it. Um, there was enough work to be done underneath it uh, that it took me two full summers to paint the outside of our house. Don't you just love those houses in your neighborhood? The houses that are like, you know, like partially done. And, and anyway, that was me. And so, so uh, you know, took time to replace things that had been torn off and broken things and scraped things and caulked things and got it ready for the actual paint. So uh, finally, second summer, I'm painting. I'm on top of a roof that is over our porch. So I'm kind of painting second story. And it's a beautiful, sunny Saturday afternoon. And I'm just enjoying life. It's my quiet space. My, and it's just, it's just, just fabulous. And, and at one point, I look around the corner. And my wife had gotten into the garage. And I had, I had a big five-gallon bucket of paint on the driveway. And you can just imagine what happened, Right? We had a gravel driveway, and so my wife, I, I look around the corner, I see my wife backing out of, the, out of the garage, and it was like slow motion. No! And I just, in the back of the car, hits the edge of the paint, five-gallon bucket, and tsh, and I just see it all just going all over the gravel. And I don't remember climbing down the ladder, and I am in the middle of the, of the driveway screaming. I mean, it's not just like, oh, man, I can't believe that happened. I, am, I have lost my ever-living mind. And I am screaming, saying some things I should not say. I mean, it is not pretty. Jossie gets out of the car, and of course she's like, oh, I'm so sorry. But then she sees me, and I'm, I mean, it's not just for like a couple of seconds. This is going on. Jossie's like, come on, boys, we need to go inside. Daddy needs some alone time. And I, I don't know how long it lasted, but it was not a short amount of time. And growing up in, in the home that I grew up in, I probably would have been like, well, just a bad day, bad moment. That was terrible. That was terrible. It was disappointing. Disappointing to have lost paint, the money that it was going to take to replace it, uh, the money to clean it, or the time to clean it up, that I could have been painting the house, the whole thing disappointing for sure. But did it warrant a response like that? <laughs> no. The response was disproportionate to the experience. Like I said, I would have normally just brushed it aside. Uh, it was just a bad day, and I was just so disappointed. But in fact, I needed to take some time, which I later did, to realize what's really going on underneath the surface to cause that kind of explosion. And as I reflected on those things and examined what was happening in my heart, I was able to come to realize the string of things that had been happening over the previous months that had not gone my way, that had felt like they were out of control. 
And so this moment was really all of these moments of buildup coming out in this one moment. And as I reflected on that one, a couple of the things that didn't go my way had to do with people and hurts, which led me to a place of feeling the invitation of Jesus to a place of forgiveness. A series that we're in is called The Unexamined Life. We as Americans like to set goals and accomplish things, and those things are good. But the Christian practice, the more Christian practice is self-examination. Because we don't just want to be about accomplishing things, we want to be about becoming someone. The Greek philosopher Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. Point, examine your life. And we need to know what's going on, not just on the surface, but underneath. John Calvin, the reformer, wrote in the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the knowledge of God and that of ourselves is connected. Without knowledge of self, there is no knowledge of God. Without knowledge of God, there is no knowledge of self. So it is not one over the other, it is both. It is a matter of us knowing God and us knowing ourselves, and the contrast uh, that brings about places of flourishing and us becoming. So we dove into that in the beginning last week. So if you weren't here, I encourage you to pick up last week's talk. You can watch online or listen on podcast. But if we really, really explore the interior of our lives, and we're honest with ourselves. Therefore, we will know ourselves as we really are, not as we hope to be, not as we pretend to be, but as we really are. Then we will inevitably be brought up against what the Bible calls sin. Wow, it got quiet in here. We see things as they're not supposed to be. We see things like contempt towards a spouse or a roommate. We see things like our relationship to money or a relationship to alcohol or a relationship to pornography. We see selfishness. We see the ways that that we might fight for ourselves and disrespect someone else. Now, I realize sin is not an everyday topic of conversation. But it is an important one. And it is a subject that is a main theme throughout the Scripture. And something as a follower of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in the room today, is important. And if you're not a follower of Jesus in the room today, maybe you're a skeptic, maybe you're you're wondering, it is an important aspect to study and understand what it is and what causes our world to be as it is today. And I want to start by talking not just about sin, but where it started. And, and instead of just saying, well, it started in the beginning when, when Adam and Eve ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, let's talk a little bit about what that was really all about. In Genesis chapter 1, the first chapter of the first book of the Bible, God creates the creation account. God creates an utterly good and perfect world and established how it was supposed to work. You know, if you create something, you you are the one who also understands how it's supposed to work. 
And so God knew what was evil and would destroy his world, and he knew what was good and cause it to flourish. In Genesis chapter 2, he places Adam and Eve, the first created humans, in the Garden of Eden, and they are told to enjoy. Enjoy what I've made. Enjoy everything that is here. Work it and have dominion over it. Except there's one thing that you need to know that you can't enjoy. That is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everything else, enjoy it. That, stay away from it. Which means that God presented them with a choice. He presented them with a choice. Will you trust God's definition of good and evil? Or they seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves. In other words, if they didn't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they wouldn't be able to identify and be able to autonomously make that decision. They would just say, just, God, we trust you've made this. We trust that you know how it works. And so we're just going to follow along. A serpent comes along, tempts them to believe that God's holding out on them. And so they do, in fact, eat of the tree, saying that they want to decide good and evil for themselves, that they don't need God. Basically saying that if they seize autonomy from God and do their own thing, that they will be better off. So, working definition of sin for this this talk today, and an ongoing way maybe for us to think about it, is living by my own definition of good and evil rather than trusting God's. Trusting God's definition of good and evil. So that means then that if we trust our own definition of good and evil, it is sin that turns us inward. And as a result of the inward turn of the human heart, we do what's good for us even at the expense of someone else. And if you look at the Old Testament, we see, we see humans defining good and evil and how it works out. There's murder and adultery and greed and, and thievery and, and all of these things. I don't know, you know, every time I read, go to the, go to the Scripture and I read uh, the Old Testament, I'm like, I, I don't think I'd let my kids go to this movie. I mean, it is, it is chock full of what happens when humans determine what's good and evil. And if you look at the Old Testament, you look at current history, if, you just, if I just look at my own kids— shows that humans are terrible at defining good and evil for themselves. And I realize sin is not a popular topic in our day. I realize that maybe it's not even a popular topic in some churches today. Because we prefer to talk about self-esteem. Because we just want to talk about making ourselves feel better. And we don't want to, we don't want to, we want to avoid anything to, that might make us somehow feel bad about ourselves so that we might not somehow feel worthless or guilt-ridden. As somebody said, well, if I think about it, that's where I go. The Scripture says in Genesis chapter 1, when He creates humans, that He creates them in His image. All humans are created in God's image, which means that all humans have infinite value, meaning there is nothing that we can do. There There is no place that we can go that makes us not made in the image of God, nor does it make us worthless or unlovable. So that is settled regardless of what we do. 
And the goal is also not for us to live in guilt, to be just guilt-ridden. Like, oh, well, I feel bad about this, and so I guess I just need to somehow like, uh, just live in this guilt until I feel like I've, I'm okay. The goal of our sin is not living in guilt and feeling bad. The goal of identifying our sin is receiving grace and becoming more loving. See, because if sin turns us inward, grace turns us outward. It turns us upward to God and outward to other people. See, guilt is real, but guilt is a means to an end. It is not the end of the story. The end is God and His grace. It is a means to an end, and that is for us to meet God and experience His grace. So you're like, so are you saying to me, Aaron, that I'm supposed to be like like a a sinner and I'm a worm and I'm just the worst and I just hope that I can, you know, like God can just somehow take care of me? No. The reality is, is we are not worms. We are deeply loved sinners. Deeply loved by the Father. Actually, I love what the New Testament writers say, and that is that as a follower of Jesus, you're a saint. You're a saint. Because it's a, it's a, it's a statement about God's work in us. Not because of our own efforts have we become saints, but because of Jesus' work on the cross and what, who we are in him as a result, that we are not, oh, I'm just a sinner and just maybe I might be able to be like, do something a little saintish. No, no, no. We are saints because of the work of Jesus. We identify not by our sin. We identify by Jesus' work in us and we have the possibility and the ability to sin. Puts God up here and sin down here rather than the other way around. So what's my definition of grace? Working definition? God at work. Because the opposite of God at work is me at work. And God's grace says, can't do it on our own. I'm not going to be autonomous. I need you. I need your grace. I have sinned. I've missed the mark. I have gone my own way. I defined good and evil for myself. And God, I need you. I need your grace. God at work. It's true. We were created sinless. God created a perfect world. Sin damaged that, though. But in God's love, He he initiated a rescue plan and his love is still directed towards us. That didn't cause him to somehow now lose his love for us and direct it elsewhere and only direct his wrath and anger at each one of us. His love drives him. And we get a picture of this in Luke chapter 15 when Jesus talks about the prodigal son. Tells this parable about this lost son. He, He spits in his father's face by asking for his inheritance before his father dies. He goes away and spends all of this money in wild living. And he finds himself after he's run out of money in a pigsty. He finds himself at rock bottom and he, and he feels like he's going to die. And so he says, well, I might as well at least go work for my dad. My servants have it better than I do. So he goes home, and before he can make it to the doorstep, his father has run down the road, has embraced him. His, so the son has a speech prepared. Dad, I did this. I blew it. I'm awful. And before he even finishes his speech, he says, bring him a robe and bring him sandals and put a ring on his finger. We're going to have a celebration because my son is home. 
My son is back. What is that a picture of? It's a picture of that was, which was lost and broken and his acknowledgement of this is the wrong place and God saying, I welcome you home into the arms of the Father, into the arms of grace. Welcome home. See, because the goal is not a primary focus on our sins. Dallas Willard, the author and philosopher, said that is the gospel of sin management. But God is not interested in the gospel of sin management. The goal is that we would experience the grace and the love of God. David Benner, spiritual director, wrote in his book, The Gift of Being Yourself, spiritual transformation does not result from fixing our problems. It results from turning to God in the midst of them and meeting God just as we are. Which is why the Scripture encourages us to deal with our sin through a practice called confession. To not identify and fix, but identify and confess. Confession, another working definition for us, is the practice of recognizing and acknowledging the ways that we have lived autonomously from God. How have I gone my own way rather than going your way? How do we know what God's way is? We look at Jesus. We look at what he said. We look at what he did. We look throughout Scripture and the the voice of God that speaks through the Scripture to us to say, this is the way that I would have you to live in order to flourish within my world. And this is what happens if we confess. 1 John 1, verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Praise God. I mean, think about that. It's not, if we confess our sins, he's, he's faithful to wag his finger at us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to make sure that you feel bad enough for a while so that you can earn your way back into his good graces. It is not if we confess our sins, then somehow maybe he'll get a good list of things that you can do in order to to make it up. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. Forgive our sins. Purify us from all unrighteousness. Now, confession, I would say, is one of the most neglected practices of the Protestant church. Maybe along with fasting. Because, <laughs> you know, in fasting, we, we don't want to deprive ourselves of any displeasure or of any pleasure. We'll deprive ourselves of displeasure. Pleasures of the world, I don't want to say no to those. And confession, because we want to do everything we can to avoid difficult feelings. In 2012, I wrote a book called What's Your Secret? Freedom Through Confession, and I talked about how we must drag our sins out of the dark into the light, which means that, that, that if we don't, shame, which is associated with sin, will grow. Shame grows in the dark, which means then that we, we need to fight minimization. We need to fight justification. We need to fight deflection in our confession. You know, the kind of confessions, well, like, God, I'm really sorry. I mean, I kind of might have, um, 
I don't know, in some way, not treat my neighbor as well, but probably not. I mean, and by the way, they also, um, you know, they've been mean to me, so, you know, it just, and so we, we minimize and we justify. I mean, it happens with my boys all the time. Hey, why did you hit your brother? Well, he, it's the first things out of their mouths. We justify, we rationalize. My response, yeah, I'll talk to him later, but I want to talk about what you did, just did. Well, he, we don't like talking about ourselves. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you this, I'm a three on the Enneagram, if you're an Enneagram fan. Uh, confession is a really hard one for me. But it is so important. It's so important. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, martyr at, in World War II, wrote in his book, Life Together, Sin demands to have a man by himself or a woman. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. In the darkness of the unexpressed, it poisons the whole being of a person. In other words, you can't just put it off on the side and I'm just going to bury it and lock the door and vault it and it's just going to kind of stay there and we're going to be fine. No, it grows in the dark and it will eventually start to infect every area of our lives, our relationships, our way of thinking, our heart, our heart towards God, our heart towards others. And the scripture actually gives us another step. The first step is confess your sins to God. But in James chapter 5, verse 16, God says, Confess your faults one to another, that you might be healed. See, in 1 John 1, 9, it says that we are forgiven. In James 5, 16, it says that we are healed. Because it says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. It doesn't mean that someone else fixed it. It just means that somebody came around you in prayer and support. And as a result, God heals us through the community of faith. So I'm going to set a mic up here. And we're going to, if you guys want to start forming a line over here. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's what city groups are for. That's what trusted friends are for. And you might say, uh, 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 I, can, I can handle 1 John 1, 9, confess to God, but I cannot handle anything about anybody else. If they knew what was going on in my head, if they knew what had happened to me, if they knew what I've done, if they knew, if they knew, uh, 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 I love what my friend and the author John Mark Comer says in his book, Live No Lies. He says, we find our greatest intimacies in our greatest vulnerabilities. Maybe you're finding yourself disconnected and somehow finding it difficult to connect and find closeness in relationship. Can I encourage you to lean into vulnerability? It doesn't mean that the first time you meet somebody, you're like, hey, can I share my deepest, darkest secrets? I need some close friends. That's not how this works. But there is something about opening our hearts and our lives to others in order to experience the closeness, experience healing, and for God to work amongst that relationship. So recognizing sin leads to confession. Confession cultivates humility, and humility welcomes grace. That's why it says in James chapter 4, 
verses six and seven, but he, God, gives more grace. See, God's grace does not run out. It's not like, well, you've reached the grace quota. I'm sorry, you, you blew it this time. I, I, I don't have anything left. There is no end to the grace of God. That is why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble, or grace to the humble. The proud person says, I can't confess. I got this. I'm okay. Somebody else did this and made this happen. But the humble person says, I blew it. And God, I'll bring it to you. And when that happens, he pours out his grace. But look at this, verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, confession doesn't just cultivate humility. Confession is spiritual warfare against the enemy's schemes and plans in your life. The enemy would love for you to keep those things locked up in the dark and for them to grow. And for him, over time, he would love to see your life destroyed as you believe lies and live in to and partner with evil. But God is saying, bring it into the light, partner with God and see your life flourish and see what his grace will do. So, Last week, I introduced the practice of the prayer of examine, made popular by Ignatius of Loyola. He started the Order of the Jesuits in the 1500s. And the goal of the prayer of examine was to, di- to daily review your day. So he encouraged it to happen at the end of the day or towards the end of your day. If you can't do it at the end of the day, do it at the beginning of the day, whenever. Find your space, review the last 24 hours. And his goal the goal of the prayer was that we would be able to see and experience God's grace and presence in our lives. So I went over these last week. And so if you want more detail, uh, I encourage you to watch or listen to last week's message. What am I grateful for? What am I anxious about? And then the question I'm going to add to this today is, how did I go my own way? How did I go my own way today? How did I act contrary to the way of Jesus? Is it that passive-aggressive jab to your spouse or to your coworker? Didn't treat someone with respect that they deserve in person or online? Maybe you ignored someone that was truly in need, or you loved poorly or missed an opportunity to love well. Or maybe acted not in the way of Jesus by being impatient, snapping at your kids. The list could go on. Sometimes they're small, and sometimes they're what we would consider to be large. But those are the types of questions that we would ask under that question, how did I go my own way? It takes about 10 to 15 minutes to do this reflection every day. I encourage you maybe if you take out a journal and maybe you write them out every day. It's a way, though, of reflecting because how, how did I go in my own way? If we're people of confession, we will humble ourselves, bring those things to God, and we will experience the grace and presence of, of, our, of our God in that moment. All of this is... Our, embraces and comes around the idea of repentance, that we repent before God. Humble ourselves and repent. 
Repentance means that we go a different way. We would say, I've been going this way and I need to go this way. I've been going my way and I need to go your way. I believe Christians need to be people of repentance. And our prayer and our cry is that people who don't know Jesus would come to a place of repentance and experience and know the fullness of God. But I believe for Christians to be credible in asking others to repent, we must model repentance for our own failures. Which means we need to cultivate this practice of confession and humility within us. And as a result of that, I wonder if the Holy Spirit won't work through that and cause there to be a ripple effect. For some of you here today, we all have a next step of practicing this prayer of examine and self-examination. But for some of you, some of us here today might be a next step of confessing and repenting to God for the first time. You realize maybe as I've been talking, maybe the Holy Spirit is tugging on your heart to respond to the invitation of God to repent and say, God, I need you. I've been leading my life on my own autonomously and I am finding myself not living in a place of fulfillment and purpose and satisfaction deep in my soul. So maybe it's for the first time or maybe it's for the first time in a long time. And you're like the prodigal son who thought, or the prodigal daughter who's gone away and said, I think I can do this on my own. I'm better off without God. But you realize, I need to come home. I need to go home. And I promise you, whether the first time or the first time in a long time, as we come home, the Father God runs down the road, opens his arms, and he says, welcome home. And we run into the arms of grace. The arms of grace that say this isn't about anything you've done. This is about receiving the grace of God because of everything that Jesus has done. So if that's you and that is your step here today, can I just encourage you, take that step by saying, even under your breath, God, I give you my life. I give you my life. It's not the only thing that we need to say to God, but it is an amazing first thing at the beginning of a journey. Jesus leading us and us following him. Maybe your next step is talk about confessing to others. You think, I don't know if I have friends like that. Maybe it's to get into a city group. City group Sundays in just a couple, of mo- a couple of weeks. An opportunity to jump into and maybe step into community like you never have before. A couple of those groups of the many are emotionally healthy relationships and emotionally healthy spirituality really helpful in cultivating the skill of self-examination in order for us, us to bring ourselves to God. For all of us today, I want us to take a step together in this space. We're going to take communion together as a way of remembering what Jesus did and acknowledging our need for him to have done that to forgive our sins that we might walk in grace. So if you have a communion cup, you should have gotten one on the way in. If you didn't, that's okay. Uh, You can just raise your hand. Uh, There's uh, several hosts here that have extra communion cups. Just keep your hand raised and they'll make sure that you get one so that we can all take communion together. The scripture says, though, before we take communion, that we are to examine ourselves before we take the bread and the cup.
So I just want us to take a few seconds. And if you would, just open your heart towards God. Maybe the prayer for each one of us is Psalm 139. Search me and know me, O God. Do you find any offensive way in me? Ask the Holy Spirit. Think through these last couple of days. Or maybe something lingering in your heart. You can take this as a moment of personal confession before God. take communion, uh, not only good to confess individually, but also collectively. So here in a moment, a confessional prayer is going to come up on the screen. You're going to pray it together. I love doing this because it reminds us that the ground at the base of the cross is level. There is not one of us in here that needs the grace of God more than another. There is not one of us in here that has done so much more that somehow we need more grace than the other. All of us are in need. Sure, it may be that some have done more than others, but the Apostle Paul in in the book of Romans talks about sin not just being an action, but in fact an affection, a power that humanity is under. And so we all are in need of the power of sin being broken in our lives, which is done by Jesus. But it is the reason that we all are in the same desperate need for Jesus as anyone else. And so let's take this time and let's pray this prayer together. Most merciful God, we have lived by our own strength and not by the power of your resurrection. In your mercy, forgive us, Lord. Hear us and help us. We have lived by the light of our own eyes, faithless and unbelieving. In your mercy, forgive us, Lord. Hear us and help us. And we have lived for this world alone and forgotten that our home is in you. In your mercy, forgive us, Lord. Hear us and help us. So may the God of all healing draw us to himself and cleanse us from all our sins that we may behold the glory of his Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you would take the communion cups, I'm going to read a passage of scripture before we take the bread and the juice. The Lord Jesus, on that he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's take the bread together. In the same way, after supper, took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's take the juice together and then I'll pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you created a perfect world and though damaged and broken by sin, you loved it too much to leave it that way. 
So you initiate a rescue plan that culminates in Jesus coming into the world, the Son of God, to bear the sins of the world, the Lamb of God, to break the power of sin and death. And so, Jesus, we praise you. We thank you. We thank you for your work on the cross. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for who you are. We thank you that as we humble ourselves, you pour out your grace on us. So God, would you help us by the power of the Holy Spirit, not only to embrace what Jesus did, but embrace the Spirit of God's way of highlighting things in our lives and giving us the courage to confess and repent and be people that turn towards you. We pray that our eyes would be not and our hearts would not be turned inward, but our hearts would be turned upward and outward to love God with all of our hearts, mind, and soul and to love our neighbor as ourselves. This we pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said,